Wasn't that fabulous? Should I keep going or should we just do a few more of those? The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. There is a view rightly abandoned by philosophers a long time ago that apart from science, there is no lever of the mind sufficient to prise apart the secrets of the material world. Uh, This is a view that has fairly profitably and famously been reheated by people I will not name. Uh, And to borrow an idiom from MasterChef, plated up with a bit of garnish to disguise its history. Now, my background is physics, uh, as Hugh mentioned earlier, uh, but even I know that there are other ways to truth than science. In fact, it is also true that most truth cannot actually be arrived at by science. Let me give you an example, which some of you may have heard before. Wouldn't it be a marvellous saving of time if you could shower and cook toast at the same time? Wouldn't it be great? You would be there with the suds, the soap, your washer, if you're that kind of person, and just next door would be the toaster, all ready to go, perhaps with your peanut butter and knife, all there, and pop, you grab it, you eat. That's at least 15 minutes longer on the snooze button. Who does this? Does anyone here? Maybe you're not a shower person, maybe a bath person. Does anyone cook toast in the bath? No? Why not? It's a marvellous convenience, obviously. Well, uh, we know why. Um, I don't do this either. I know it's a bad idea. And And I should say, I don't know that it's a bad idea because of science. I haven't, for example, tested this empirically and scientifically on my cat or on my children. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I'm actually allowed here today. (laughs) But I know this because, like many of you, I've seen Groundhog Day. It's a truth I've heard and passed on. It's, I dare say it, and I think you'd agree, an important truth the one ought not to shower and cook toast at the same time. And if you get nothing else out of this conference, that will not be a bad thing to learn. (laughs) The most important truths of all, though, are relational truths. And these are arrived at entirely apart from science. I've been married now uh, for almost 13 years. Next week, 13 years. And I may suspect, I may certainly hope that my wife, Fiona, loves me. But I live in a state of existential doubt and crisis until she tells me, Mike, I love you. As a relational truth, that is what we call disclosure or revelation. And revelation, by its very name, you can see, is something which has been revealed rather than something which has been discovered. And the marvellous book we're going to be reading over these next three days is a divine revelation, a revelation that is personal, a revelation that is from the 
personal God. And divine revelation takes the power and the wonder and the beauty and the significance of personal disclosure and lifts it to a whole new level. You see, God, by his very nature, is simply unable to be discovered. Our our faculties, our, our minds, our equipment are insufficient to grasp or to apprehend him. Whatever you've learned from watching Finding Nemo, the krill has no idea of the nature of the blue whale beside it. I love a good audience. And unless God tells us what he is like, then there is nothing or almost nothing that we can know about him except perhaps that he is big and he is powerful and he is there. And that, that may, in our Western society, shaped by Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, be enough. That may be a good thing, but in most of the world, that knowledge that God is big and powerful and there actually leads people to live in fear of the spirits and the gods that they worship. And perhaps almost as importantly is this. If there is a God who has made us, if we are made by God with a reason, and unless that purpose is revealed to us, then our very deepest questions remain unanswered or even irrelevant. What am I for? What am I worth? What do I mean? Where do I find significance? All these things can only be revealed to us. And in this book of Revelation, we're reminded that the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, is the kind of God who reveals, who discloses himself to us. But the way he does so is often utterly surprising. Did you see the little sequence in the first couple of verses? God, the Father, gives this revelation to his son Jesus. I'm going to talk more about why that happens in that way uh, in a few minutes. Jesus then sends it by his, his angel, a uh, Greek angelos. Uh, it could be a spiritual being. It could be a, a personal messenger. We're never sure. And this revelation comes to John, one of Jesus' original 12 followers. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, the endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. John is on Patmos. It's a relatively barren and very small volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, uh, a little bit southwest off the coast of Turkey, which we'll hear more about in a moment too. It's about uh, 16 kilometers long. It's about 10 kilometers wide. It's a very, very small island. It's not the kind of place you go there by choice. Uh, If you happen to have a chance to go wandering around the Aegean, don't make Patmos high on your list of places to visit. It's a very, very unpleasant little place. About 2,500 people live there, mainly because they can't go elsewhere. And John, too, is stuck there. He's there euphemistically, as he puts it, 
because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. In other words, he's been exiled there by the Roman Empire for being someone who proclaims Jesus and not the Roman gods. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. And for being exiled, John is actually doing much better than all of the other disciples of Jesus. For 11 of the 12 were martyred, executed for being followers And he's just been stuck in a bad place for a holiday. It is the Lord's Day. A Sunday when the Spirit catches John up in a prophetic rapture like he did with Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2 verse 2. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I listened to the one who was speaking to me. And John hears a loud voice like a trumpet, just like Moses heard the voice of God 1,500 years before, Exodus 19, verse 16. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him the thunder. And this voice tells him what to do. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So if you had an online tracking system, this was what you'd see, a revelation which comes from the Father to the Son, from the Son, by his angel to John in the Spirit, and then John writes a letter. One letter, uh, which is actually really seven letters uh, combined together. Now, after all, this is a letter. You may have noticed that already. If you have a look at chapter 1, verses 4 and following, you'll see that it begins like any other letter in the New Testament. It has the author, John, uh, not John the Baptist, but one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and the author of three other much more straightforward New Testament letters. It has the recipients, the seven churches of Asia. Uh, Asia Minor being the Roman province whose boundaries are roughly coterminous with modern-day Turkey, and it has a greeting. The seven churches are named in the order that a traveling businessman or a messenger with letters would visit them, landing firstly in the great city of Ephesus on the southwest coast, traveling northwest up the coast, let me try to do it your way, traveling northwest up the coast to the port town of Smyrna before heading due north, which makes it inland because the coast keeps going northwest up to the city of Pergamum. Uh, uh, yes, Pergamum, that's right. And then southwest, back along parallel to the coast inland through Central Asia to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and lastly Laodicea. <coughs> it even closes like an apostolic letter with a final injunction in Revelation 22, verse 18, and a blessing in 22, verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. But, but in this letter, John is told to write what he he sees. It's almost a visual letter. He's told to write exactly what he sees. And what he sees is almost unbelievable, unless, of course, you believe that the heat on Patmos has baked his brains and nurtured his garden of pot. 
Revelation 1 verse 12, this is what John says. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. And I think here we come to a problem. This is a letter, yes? And letters are all about communication. And communication is at least partly about clarity. And this is not clear. I'm sure it's from God. But wouldn't you think that God of all people would know how to communicate in a way that was clear? Surely, uh, if you are here today, particularly as someone who is exploring the claims of Jesus, surely you have a right to expect that when God speaks to you in his letters, that he would do everything he could not to make them hard to get, or perhaps even more, hard to accept. Why would he write this way? You mentioned I have four kids. Uh, If I can, uh, we will spend the bulk of the next few days talking about them because I love them very, very much. Uh, I have two daughters and two sons. My eldest two are the daughters, Susanna and Rose, and they are old enough now to enjoy writing letters. They love writing letters. They write letters all the time. I go through reams and reams and reams of copy paper because they write a little letter on one and then they fold it up and turn it to an envelope and they write another one and they can go through 10 or 15 sheets in a single half hour session and that's two of them, that's 30. In 10 days, that's 500 sheets of paper. I am like an industrial paper using plant because of my children's letter writing. And most of what they write is in, in words. Uh, Often I have to help them spell it out, particularly Rose. But they write in words and their poetry isn't very good, so they mainly write in prose. Don't tell them I said that their poetry wasn't good, they'd be shattered. Uh, uh, But there are points. There are points when what they want to convey simply exceeds the power of their language because they are so little. What they're trying to communicate is beyond the grasp of their words. And what they do instead is they draw. Or they paint if I let them. They draw in order to capture what it is that they are trying to, if you'll excuse the phrase, draw out of their hearts. So Susanna uh, recently wrote me a letter. It was actually like a little story letter. And she wrote about her daddy who loves her. But she understood that the the 
flat, bare prose of saying, Daddy loves me, is not enough. It doesn't capture it. And, and I hope for you that that doesn't capture the nature of the relationships where you are loved either. And so you know what she did? She, um, instead, she drew a picture of her daddy. And she drew a picture of, of her, much little, little beside. And as we stood side by side in her picture, I held her hand and she held mine. And we both had hearts in our chests. Yeah. That's a keeper. She's too little to do metaphor and simile. So she draws instead. But most of us are adults. Uh, We have... Most of us sadly stopped writing letters. Most of us perhaps even more sadly have stopped drawing in our letters. I want to encourage you to maybe pick that up again. We have a slightly more sophisticated verbal palette though and we use metaphor and simile and hyperbole and synecdoche and all the other devices available to us. And so we are able, where my daughter's aunt, to speak about broken hearts and crushing tackles and smiles that light up the room. And so, when God wishes to communicate to us something that bare, flat prose simply cannot carry, he paints word pictures for you. He paints pictures with words so that you will be able to grasp and to be able to feel, to be moved, to be carried by what it is he's trying to tell you. This means, by the way, that because pictures take some deciphering, the Revelation is not a book which you can just skim. It's not a book which is designed to reach the broadest possible minimal level of acceptance among the most people. It is a book written to change lives. Totally. From the ground up and from the inside out. And the picture that God paints in order to change your life is a picture of Jesus. And we discover that revelation is not simply a revelation from Jesus. It is a heavenly revelation of him. And by the way, this is now why we discover that this is a revelation given by the Father to the Son. Because God is humble. Each of the persons of God are humble. They do not seek to draw praise to themselves, but to glorify the other members of the Trinity. So before Jesus is crucified in John's gospel, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. And in this book of Revelation that we read now, the Father totally glorifies his Son. Totally. In the vision that he gives to John. 
He draws, actually, as he paints this picture on a vision that the prophet Daniel had of God himself in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read to you from verse 9 in Daniel 7. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. Cool, huh? A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the book was open. Make no mistake about it, this is a vision of God, the awesome, almighty, all-powerful God. But this is what John does because God does it in the vision that he gives to him. He takes his vision of God and he collapses it into a vision that Daniel also has of a mere man. We say it again. He collapses the vision that Daniel has of God into the vision that Daniel has of a mere man. Let me read you that vision he has of a mere man in verse 13 and following in Daniel chapter 7. I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. A vision of God and a vision of man kept well apart in Daniel, but in Revelation they collide and they become one. And so that Jesus is depicted as a man who is also God himself. All authority has been given to him so that he is the one true king. He's dressed as a priest in a long robe and a sash of gold. The one true priest, the one who's able to stand between us and God and mediate and reconcile. His feet, we read in Revelation, are pure fired bronze. Pure because his whole life is founded on purity. And that gives him the right to judge. For out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, an image drawn from the prophecies of Isaiah 11 verse 4 and 49 verse 2 which speaks of his role as the judge of all the earth and the one who in his judging will strike down the evil nations, but also strike down those in the church who compromise their faith. And his his face shines. It shines like the face of the, the strong warrior in Judges 5 verse 31. Friends, whatever else you may say about this Jesus, one thing is clear. This Jesus is not just a good teacher. This Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is not certainly your homeboy. He is God. And he is king. And he is judge. And he is priest. And John falls on his face before him. And that is the right stance before Jesus. 
for he is not like you and I. this I think is where revelation gets really good when John falls to his face before the overwhelming heavenly vision of Jesus glory what does Jesus do he laid his right hand upon me And said, don't be afraid. Though Jesus is glorious as king, though Jesus is glorious as a judge, though Jesus is glorious as a priest, though Jesus is glorious as God himself, Jesus' glory is also found in his kindness and his gentleness. He does not stand aloof. He is no longer away in the distance, barred by a river of flower on a uh, river of flower. (laughs) I can't get through the river of flower. A river of fire. Much more impressive. Or on a fiery throne with fiery wheels. He is there with his servant. And all that power and all that might does not stop him from putting his hand upon John's shoulder and saying, don't be afraid for Jesus' glory is in his kindness. I am the first and the last and the living one, Jesus says. I am the Lord of history. And I'm the one who cannot die. But I was dead and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the Lord of history and yet he shapes all of history so that he who is the one who cannot die might die for us. All that power is used to make himself weak. All that life is used that he might die so that he might hold the keys of death and Hades so that he might be the one that when you die, if your trust is in him, you will hear the key in the door of the grave and the door will be flung open and you will walk out never to die again. And Jesus, this Jesus, walks among the seven lampstands, which he explains the lampstands are the churches. And Jesus, the priest, tends the lampstands, and the lampstands surround him and shine their light upon him. Jesus walks among his churches, for he cares for his people. And he is among us now, for he cares for for his people. All that power, all that might is here now for he cares for his people. And that is why the book of Revelation was written. 
Do you see in verse 3? The one who reads this is blessed. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. Jesus longs to bless. He longs to bless by, verse 4, bringing grace and peace to you. From the one who is, who was, and who is coming, uh, a language drawn from God's self-introduction of himself to Moses, uh, from the seven spirits before his throne, a description of the Holy Spirit using functional imagery, uh, seven spirits caring for seven churches, the Holy Spirit cares for all the church, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, Jesus cares for his church, and so he writes this letter that you might be blessed with grace and peace. How? Because he has revealed himself as he truly is. And today you have seen Jesus as he truly is. And the churches saw Jesus as he truly is, in his might, in his glory, in his power. But Jesus also makes sure that we know that the same one who has might and glory and power is the one who came and died for us. The one who stands in the presence of God, the one who rules all things, that one is the same one who came to the cross and entered the grave for you. The same Jesus is king. And he's coming. The time is near. This word, by the way, is not an indication of some kind of a predictive future. Uh, The time is near echoes Jesus' language in Matthew 3 verse 2. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is what we call an inaugurated future. It's saying that it's coming but has already actually begun. The time of God's blessing has broken in and has begun because of Jesus. It has begun already for those who will receive his blessing and accept him as the king, the Lord of all. But just as the time of blessing has begun, so so too is there on the horizon the warning of judgment. Revelation 1 verse 7. Look. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. Blessing or mourning. That is the choice the revelation sets before us this day in its revelation of the one who is king, the one who died for us. Now, I was told I have 35 minutes. I'm at the 30-minute mark now. I was also asked to preach on the seven letters to the churches. So why don't we do one letter today just to fulfill the brief? What do you do with this revelation? What is the first response? What is the right response? 
And for this, we turn to this letter to Ephesus. Ephesus, the great coastal city, uh, the triumph of Asia Minor, the third most powerful town in all of the Roman Empire. At its height, it held about half a million people. It was the major port center and the richest city in the Roman Empire. All of these things paled to nothing though, for as you came in from sea and you looked at Ephesus with the hills rising around it on the mouth of the, uh, the river by which it stood, looming over the whole of the city was the biggest single edifice in all the Greco-Roman world, the temple of Artemis, a great city. You can visit it still today. It is uh, one of those wonderful and sad stories because the harbour silted up because it was situated on a river. The coast moved out in the opposite of climate change. And Ephesus is now founded in its ruins about 10 kilometres from the coast. A great city and a great church. In Acts 19, we read about Paul coming and preaching first in the Jewish synagogues, but then when he is cast out of that, spending two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, preaching. And we know that throughout Asia, people came to know about the Lord Jesus Christ because from this preaching in Ephesus, the message went out. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. Those of us who've read Revelation often focus on what Jesus says negatively to the churches. But I have this against you. But notice he commends his church. He loves his church. He is kind with his church. He acknowledges the struggle that it is to follow him in the world. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. There have been various attempts to explain what it is that their first love means. And I think many Christians who've read this have felt an arrow of conviction plunged into their hearts because we too feel as if we lost that first fire of faith. There are three common interpretations of this. Uh, One is that Uh, They had, in Ephesus, declined in love for the Lord himself, as in Jeremiah 2, verse 2. But that doesn't seem to fit with their endurance, with their works and their labor. It's been suggested they have declined in love for one another. But they were never particularly famous For that declining in love, it is true that every church to whom uh, the New Testament writes is told to love one another more, but that doesn't ever seem to have been a particular issue in Ephesus. One thought has been that they've become too hard, too obsessed with defending orthodox doctrine. And that too is quite, ha- quite common. It happens when churches retreat from compromise and become proud to stand alone. 
Love is very easily dried up. But it doesn't seem to sit well with verse 6, that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, those who sought to compromise with the Roman cultic religion. Here is a fourth possibility, it's this. See, Ephesus was a tremendously evangelistic church. It was a center for mission into the world. And I want to suggest that this is their first love. Some of you may not understand how evangelism can be a great love. And I think C.S. Lewis wonderfully points out that sometimes your joy of something is only completed when you speak of it. That's what Facebook's for. I was walking up one day in our house with my little boy, Hugh. Uh, He's our third child. He's just gorgeous and sweet. When I throw my girls up in the air, they say, hi, hi, daddy. I throw Hugh up. He goes, oh, daddy's scary. (laughs) I was walking him upstairs. He looked up to me, daddy. He said, daddy, my poo is like chocolate juice. (laughs) And I tell you what, I've never updated my status so quickly. Sometimes your joy of something is just found incomplete. A friend of mine was once traveling in a bus through the city and he saw a guy walking along the road with a guitar balanced on top of his head. (coughs) He just wanted to tell someone the bus was empty. And the joy that Ephesus had in Jesus was completed. Their first love completed by telling of him. And it fits with a punishment too. A church is a lampstand, is meant to shed light on Jesus Christ. And if they do not shed light, he will take the lamp away. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For God is a revealing God. He is a God who makes himself known. So the blessing and grace and peace might flow to the world. And he calls us, those whom he has made to be a kingdom and priests, to do likewise like the church in Ephesus. To speak of the one who is king and who died for us. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you are inaccessible to us because of our finitude, our weakness, our nature, you have broken through all those barriers to show yourself. And we thank you that when we see you, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see you. And we thank you particularly that it is indeed the one who died for us, who had tender compassion for us, who rules over the world. So let us, Lord, not be afraid. That must be bold to speak of this blessing to the whole world for the glory of your name.